And if you have a Bible, let's open up to Romans 14 tonight. A little bit of an odd title, but we'll be talking a lot about uh, guts, a little bit of a, of a crude way, but our stomachs tonight because we're talking about food, but uh, uh, not to make you too hungry. Hopefully you already ate. If you haven't ate, uh, maybe in about 45 minutes you can get something uh, or as quick as you can get through the drive through That's not an easy task in this time, right? <laughs> kind of slow, but uh, uh, we'll be talking about uh, uh, the subject of food tonight and, and maybe you're wondering why, this, why is that going to come up? We'll, we'll find out pretty quickly uh, and I'll explain the meaning of the title at the end of the message. So how about that? We'll get to that in just a little bit. Uh, Romans 14 is going to continue with a trend that we've been talking about on Wednesday nights. We actually talked about it on Sunday. Uh, so kind of some, sometimes the, the messages and, and the, the themes run together, which I think is because God's wanting to get something across to us pretty clearly. Uh, but we'll, con- we'll continue tonight talking about the trend and the theme of other, others first. If there's any chapter in the Bible that's about others first, it's Romans 14. Now we've learned a lot about this subject so far. Romans 12 was all, was all about it. Romans 13 was considering others uh, with the decisions that we make. Romans 14 is going to be about it uh, to an even greater level. So hopefully uh, we'll receive that well. Now, this will further clarify the question. If, if you're wondering, uh, we are in the section of Romans that we call or we titled sanctification. Remember, Romans is about um, the, the process of salvation. Uh, it begins by telling us why we need to be saved. Then it goes into telling us how we get saved. And then it goes into talking about what happens when we get saved. And then it begins to tell us about what happens now that we are saved. So from condemnation to justification, unification to sanctification. And if you haven't already learned over the last couple of weeks, uh, if you wonder what is sanctification, we've learned so far that it is the transformation of a believer into a true mature disciple of Christ, making our priorities like Jesus' own. I think that's the simplest way I can explain it. Remember back in Romans 12, it says, therefore, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. You've been saved. You've been made one with Christ. So the next step is to present yourself before God as a sacrifice day in and day out, a living vessel for him to use and grow and and make like him that you may be transformed. Sanctification, the word literally means to be made whole, to be made holy, uh, to be made complete, uh, to be transformed into the complete believer that God intends us to be, uh, that all of us, we believe by faith, but we become disciples, which means our lives change. And sanctification is that transforming process, taking you from belief to, uh, to becoming a true disciple of Jesus that you might would become like Christ. After all, uh, Christian means like Christ. So to be sanctified is to be made more and more like him. The summation of Jesus' ministry is that he died for us. He poured his life out for us. And that is the message that Paul preaches in the New Testament. Uh, and if you've, if you've noticed so far in Romans, the, the first 11 chapters were very theological heavy, very doctrine heavy, telling us about salvation, how we get it and, and what it's all about. The last part of Romans is very practically practical uh, in, in its teaching. And that is really the pattern that Paul uses throughout his uh, writings, throughout his writing style, is that he begins his letters telling us what we should believe, and then he, tra- and he goes in and he transitions into how we should behave. The first half of every one of his letters 
mostly is here's what we believe and the last half is here how we, here's how we should behave. Romans 1 through 11 is what we believe. Romans 12 through 16 is how we should behave. And you can open to other letters that Paul wrote and you can find this same template. The book of uh, Galatians, you find the first four chapters are theology. The last two chapters are practical teaching. Uh, Ephesians, the first three chapters, theology. The last three chapters, practical teaching. Colossians, the first two chapters, theology. The last two, practice if you get the drift, that Paul splits his book sometimes in half, sometimes three-fourths to, to a quarter. Um, if, if you go ahead and read the beginning sections of all those, you'll get a kind of a, a similar uh, story that we've heard in Romans. Romans is very exhaustive. It's very long. The others are, very, are, are kind of short. Uh, but just to show you, this isn't just exclusive to Romans uh, and to kind of get our, get our minds in the right place. Listen to how Paul begins the practical section of Ephesians. Therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. So what does sanctification mean? That we might become like Christ. We might would become walking in a manner worthy of our calling. And notice the details there. That you might would be filled with humility and gentleness and patience. Now, what, is those, what do those adjectives have in common? They speak to or they refer to our treatment of each other, Right? that humility is measured in our relationship with other people. Gentleness and patience is measured in how we relate to other people, right? That you, you know, when humility and, and gentleness and patience in and of ourselves, there's no way to measure it. You measure it by how we interact with others, which tells us that our sanctification as Christians has to do with how we relate to other people. And, and, he, and there in the blue, you see it. Bearing with one another. So, what is sanctification about? How we relate to one another, how we reflect what God has done, how it comes out of us, how it goes through us, how it goes to others. And look at what he says in the third verse. Eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. So what is the end goal of sanctification? That the body of Christ might be united and might have peace. United and peace. Keep those in mind. They'll be important for tonight's text. Similarly, in Galatians chapter 5, when Paul begins the practical section, you were called to freedom, brothers. Do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, what's, there's that phrase again, serve one another. I, 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 I challenge you, go through the Bible, if you've never done this before, go through the New Testament and highlight every time you see the word one another. And you'll notice that it's used a lot by the Apostle Paul in the last half of his letters. He says this in Galatians 5, continued. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word or one phrase. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. So, so there's a danger if we are not sanctified. There's a danger that there's a breakdown in the body of Christ in how the kingdom of God is being built up. So that's why it's so important, right? Now, as for other of Paul's letters, if you go and read 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, they pretty much are entirely uh, practical-based teaching. Uh, Paul says to the people at Corinth, hey, I just spent 18 months with y'all. Y'all have already heard the theology. I'm writing you two letters that is all about what you should do with what you know. So 1 Corinthians, 15 chapters. 2 Corinthians, 
13 chapters all about what you should do, particularly pertaining to how you relate to each other. And and again, the book of Philippians, it's entirely practical based. Uh, They are entirely focused on the sanctification process. They are all about how we treat each other, how we interact with each other as members of the body of Christ. Now, Romans 12 didn't waste time making it clear that transformation, the transformation process uh, is uh, about finding our place in the body of Christ, learning to be in touch with our new identity and the role that we're meant to play with regards to one another. Uh, Again, remember Romans 12, that study was pretty intense, right? It was about taking, uh, making our focus on how we are raising each other up, even at our own expense. Now, Romans 13 from last week brings into view our place within a larger secular society. And the focus of last week's message was that we should submit our earthly identities to our Christian identity so that our attachment to the things of the flesh don't disrupt our obedience to Christ and to his people and to the body of Christ and into our love for each other. For us to accomplish the most good for the kingdom of God and to love others with a pure heart, our allegiance to Jesus must be first and our allegiance must inform how we handle our other attachments. This, is, this has most to do with our testimonies and our witness. We cannot risk running them, ruining them or compromising them because of our affections being tied to the wrong source or our hearts being wired to the wrong agendas. And that happens very easily, doesn't it? Now, if our priority is promoting self, we will never find the room to promote others above ourselves. If our allegiance is to some earthly agenda that conflicts with God's way, we will turn our heads to things that contradict our commitment to God's way. Colossians 3, Paul begins the practical section like this. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. That's pretty explicit, right? Pretty specific. Do not focus on anything that is earthly in its makeup, as in it might detract you from Jesus. Now you say, well, that's a little bit extreme. I mean, I can't focus on anything. If it distracts you from focusing on Jesus, it could disrupt the sanctification process. So bring it all under his rule. And then he says this later on. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy, beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Again, what are all these qualities? How we relate to each other, right? A compassionate heart, when we're just in the room by ourselves, doesn't, there isn't, that doesn't matter, right? Because we don't have any, you know, for ourselves, it's not about, it doesn't really matter. Compassion is our relationship with other people, how we treat other people, how we react to other people. He goes more specific. Bearing with one another, if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Now, I I wanted to show you these because each one of them ends similarly, doesn't it? Uh, uh, um, Ephesians, it, it was about peace and unity. Galatians, it was about building each other up that we would not tear each other down. Colossians ends with this, this, this aspiration of perfect harmony. And the goal of Romans 14 is going to be this same idea that we might would have peace, unity, and harmony, that we might would make decisions with others in mind 
because that's what is required to maintain this harmony, this peace, this unity that is so important. It must be very important to Jesus, right? He prayed about it the night before he died. Paul teaches it in every book that he wrote. There are things that we will endure for the sake of Jesus that we would not consider enduring for a minute otherwise. There are things that we will tolerate if it means maintaining a platform on which we can shine and love others from that we might not entertain our flesh. From the perspective, perspective is so important because as Romans 13 ends, Romans 13 verse 14 says, put on the Lord Jesus, make no provisions for the flesh to fulfill its lust. The one thing your flesh wants the most is for you to be at the center and for you to not consider what anybody else needs or wants because they will only get in your way. Now, I, that's not, I'm not trying to vilify you or demonize you. I'm just trying to get you to, to understand. And this is just trying to get us to understand what is real about us. Our flesh wants us to consider nobody else and wants us to see, as, see everybody as an obstacle. That's what our flesh is. Our flesh says it's about me, 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 me. And again, the, the most primal and grotesque way of understanding that is put a piece of food in front of some animals and watch what they do to each other to get that piece of food, Right? What did Paul talk about in Galatians? You will devour each other because in your flesh, I, I know we're more dignified. I know we're refined. I know we're human beings, right? But he says, in your flesh, you will be no better than an animal trying to get the piece of meat. Your flesh, our flesh, my flesh, my flesh will not look at you as nothing but an obstacle if I don't check it, put it in check and I don't realize what God's called me to do. Now, as we get into Romans 14, the conversation is going to take us back to Romans 12 as it refers to how we interact with each other, how we deal with each other. But the subject of Romans 13 is going to be emphasized still because the different responses and relationships uh, that we all have with our governments and our worldly systems, uh, that, uh, that, that brings to mind that we have a lot of different opinions and we have a lot of different ideas and worldviews. Romans 14 is going to address that the fact that so many of us don't agree and so many of us are different, uh, that is something we're going to have to deal with. And that is something that if we don't learn to deal with it in love, we will never be able to maintain this perfect harmony. We will never find unity. We will never find peace because the one thing that sets people off more than anything is the differences that we have with each other. The message of Romans 14 is not gonna be about the theological differences we have because Romans does not allow for theological differences. We believe in Jesus, we worship Jesus, we worship God, the one true God, the God of the Bible, the God who saves us. This is not about having a difference of opinion about Jesus. It's about having a difference of opinion about all the other stuff that happens in life, which is something that all of us are familiar with. The message is gonna be uh, for those of us who have our theology figured out, we know what we believe, we know what that means practically, but it's going to ask us, Paul's gonna require that we exercise patience and grace with respect to those who may not be as firm or strong in their faith. Paul's gonna look at you and look at me and he's gonna say, listen, listen guys, if you don't learn how to be patient with each other and be gracious toward each other, you will never be able to do your part at achieving and maintaining unity. Once again, this chapter is going to call us to question, examine, and evaluate the decisions we make in light of how they may affect others. Because isn't it true that every decision affects everybody? 
Sometimes we aren't aware of it. Sometimes we ignore it. Sometimes we don't care. Romans 14 is going to say, you got to care. You have to care. You're a Christian. That's your nature. It's going to confront us with the reality that many of us are different at different speeds, different places in our walk with God. And we're going to be asked to, to be extra considerate towards our brothers and sisters who may not be where we are and may not ever get to where we are before we're out of here. The chapter, maybe even more than the last two, is going to be crucial in our continued transformation into the image of Jesus because its entire premise, the entire premise, if you want to summarize it in two points, how we receive those who are different than us, it's going to, it's going to, ask, it's going to confront us in how we receive those that are different than us. Now, that's a loaded statement. What do you mean? How, what kind of difference? Well, there's, all, there's a lot of ways to be different, isn't there? And it matters how you receive each other, how you receive the different people, different places of life that they come from. How we receive those different than us, especially those that are weaker than us. And, and again, you might define weaker in different ways, but that's part of it. There's a lot of ways to look at this. And also it's gonna make it clear how we should do this. And then it's gonna shift to what should we be willing to do with the weaker in mind? Should you change something about you if it means that it might benefit someone else? That's what Romans 14 is gonna cause us to, 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 to call into question. Now, in this instance, the weakness isn't speaking of weaker than us physically, but it's going to refer to the weaknesses that we might have spiritually, that we might not all be at the same maturity level as other Christians. It's about how we interact with Christians who don't yet have the confidence in their own spiritual connection, who don't know what we know, who might not understand the freedom that we do or may have different beliefs that we do based on how they read the Scripture. It's going to require us to, to understand that we're all at different places. And that's going to be unavoidable in our walk with God. And if you ever find yourself in a religious environment where everybody believes the same thing and walks the same way and looks the same way and claims to all be at the same place, the, the litmus test is probably not Jesus. It's probably some man-made agenda, and we'll get to that too. Romans 14 is going to refer to strong and weak. And I think the moral of the story and the lesson is going to be that Christians— should never be quick to judge, ridicule, or belittle one another. So if you, if you check out and don't listen to the rest of the message, at least get this point, because this will help you understand it later. We should never be quick to judge, ridicule, or belittle one another. We should always be open and ready to listen to, learn from, and be patient with each other. Now, I bring up this point first because if you already have a problem with this, hopefully this word, the scripture can help you out. <laughs> but I, I think it's good to admit that maybe we aren't really well equipped to do this so that we might get the help that we need. That we would not do so in a condescending or an eye roll fashion, but in a legitimate uplifting way. Can you imagine? Can you imagine how much better off we'd all be if we live by these principles? Never judge. Well, what if I have a good reason to? doesn't the bible doesn't really give you one ridicule little i'm not not gonna do that i'm never gonna do that even if i have a, even if i feel like i should i'm not going to what if we as a people were always quick to listen quick to learn from and be patient with if you're wondering if this is something that's required of us again romans 13 8 says you owe everyone love and i think at the basis of what love is this is what it's about not judging, not ridiculing, not belittling, but being open and listening, learning, being patient with. I want us to read verses 1 through 12, and we're going to unpack this a couple sections at a time. 
receive one or welcome one who is weak in the faith, but not to disputes over doubtful things. For one believes he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. Let not him who eats despise him who does not eat, and let not him who does eat does not eat judge him who eats, for God has received him. Who are you to judge another servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day above another, another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. Underline that, that's important. He who observes the day, observes it to the Lord. He who does not observe the day, to the Lord, he does not observe it. He who eats, eats to the Lord, for he gives God thanks. And he who does not eat to the Lord, he does not eat and gives God thanks. For none of us lives to himself, and no one dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and rose and lived again, that he might be the Lord both of the dead and the living. But why do you judge your brother? Or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. It is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us shall give an account of himself, emphasis on the individual, to God. I want to begin with verse 1. Receive one who is weak in the faith, not to dispute with them over the things they may have doubts or the things that seem doubtful about their faith. Right off the bat, Paul says, Here is your, here's a rule that should be in, in every church's bylaws. We welcome all. We do not wrestle with you and we are not going to wreck you. We are not here. We're welcoming you into our, our assembly. We're not here to fight with you. And we're not here to try to wreck your attempt to get to Jesus. You are welcome. You are welcome. You are welcome. Not just because we say, hey, welcome, but because we are going to do whatever is within our means to make you feel welcome. And let me, let me explain. Everybody here has been into a restaurant that has welcome somewhere on the sign, on the glass, on their menu. But you have experienced what it's like to not be welcome in that restaurant, haven't you? You've been in a store before that was welcoming based on the sign, but as soon as you got in there, you were told not to touch, not to look, and by no means get near certain things. That means you were not welcome there. They said you were, but you weren't. You've been in someone's home before that they may have said, hey, welcome in, but you did not feel welcome, right? The church is no different. We may say that you're welcome, but it's about what we do and how we do it that determines if we are truly welcoming people. Let it be said of us that we are a welcoming people that should be our default posture. This does not sound like a too monumental of a gesture, but you'd be surprised. In fact, religion can be very unwelcoming, can it? You've all experienced that. The religious leaders of Jesus' day didn't hide this. They didn't want people. They didn't really, they, they weren't, they were not shy about it to say, hey, we don't welcome everybody. We want people that are like us. But if you're not like us, if you are different than us, we'll welcome you into our assembly and debate you and prove that you're wrong and tell you to leave. But you're not welcome here. 
One of their greatest criticisms of Jesus was that he was too welcoming. Remember the prodigal son, how that story started? They were critical that he was welcoming and receiving sinners to himself. Now, without even knowing what the rest of the chapter is about, this is one of the most non-negotiable, if we cannot get this right, we should not even move forward points in the Bible. If if, if our religious posture makes our default posture towards someone that we're going to wrestle with them. And, and you know what I mean by this, don't you? Have you ever been around somebody that they made, they, they said, hey, come on in. But as soon as you started talking about what you believed and how you saw things, they immediately tried to argue with, about, with you about it and tell you why they were right and you were wrong. They didn't give you a chance to explain yourself. And maybe you didn't, let's be honest, maybe you were so weak in your faith, you really didn't know how to explain yourself. And you were hoping you could find a place with, you could find an environment where you could talk about it and express that you were wondering or questioning and trying to figure it out, but you weren't even given the, the opportunity to express those things. As soon as you made the slightest confession that you did not believe like them, they made you feel as if you were completely unworthy. You, you've, been there. you've been there before, I've been there before. Maybe you've been the person making people feel unworthy before and, and I hope not, but if you have, we can learn from it. If our religious position makes our default posture towards someone that we're going to wrestle with them, we're going we're gonna to you know, wear them down, that position is poisonous because we're potentially going to wreck someone's chances of getting established in their faith that they are just getting started with. Regardless of the nature of belief, the drift of any religion, whether it's liberal or conservative, whatever the spectrum, the drift of religion is hostility towards outsiders and arrogance toward those who are not quite where they are. And that's the spirit of self-righteousness at work. Let me make a statement that might sound a little bold, but I think it needs to be said. If our communities are not welcoming, then they are not Christian in every sense of the word. That, that sounds, when you see that written out in bold, it's a little bit hard to swallow, isn't it? But that's the truth. Because what is the definition of Christian? It's that Christ has accepted and received us. Listen, you don't know what God's done with me. I could put on, I can make it look like that God has cleaned me up and made me all, all like I need to be, but you, you guys don't know what I struggle with and I don't know what you struggle with. But you know what I know? God has accepted you just like you are. He has welcomed you into his arms. And I'm gonna do the same to you. And you should do the same to me and we should do the same to each other and we should do the same to all those that are trying to find their way and that are expressing, hey, I'm trying to get there. I wanna get there. I'm trying to put my faith or exercise my faith, but I don't, you know, some people think out loud and sometimes thinking out loud gets them into more compromising situations because people don't always receive those questions as they should. The passage may take a direction you didn't expect from here because the weakness that Paul's referring to is not some sin that someone's committing that others don't approve of. The weakness is, is quite the opposite. There are some Jewish people that are still sensitive to the Jewish law and they are not really on board with some of the Christian practices. So here's the deal. The early church would have what they called love feast every Sunday. The love feast was born out of the Lord's Supper. They would break, they would have the Lord's Supper, break bread. They would, they, they would uh, take communion and then they would have a, a potluck. They would have a fellowship dinner. Uh, and that would go on. They would spend all afternoon. They would, they would gather together for several hours. They would share a meal. They would fellowship and they would just love on each other. Um, in the, in the, the, the New Testament churches, 
the Jewish people uh, were often wary of participating in these love feasts because they did not know where the meat came from. Why does that matter? Because in Rome, if you were to go to the market and buy some meat, there's a 100% chance that meat was sacrificed in honor of one of the Roman gods. So if you were buying meat from a marketplace, then that meat was dedicated to Jupiter or Zeus or whatever God from the Roman or Greek perspective. And the Jews had been trained and been taught that we don't eat meat that was, give, that was sacrificed in honor to, want, to a God that is not ours. Now, the, the Gentiles that were saved would say to the Jews, why does it matter? Those gods aren't real. We just came out of those religions. Those gods aren't real. We can eat this meat all day long. Doesn't affect our conscience. But to the Jews, it was still a hard thing for them to process. Well, I don't think I should eat that meat. I don't feel good about it. Remember the story of Daniel. Daniel said to Nebuchadnezzar, hey, I'm not gonna eat your meat because y'all just sacrificed that to one of your gods, Marduk and some of the other Babylonian gods. I can't eat that meat. And he says, well, you're gonna get wimpy and, and, and get weak if you don't eat the meat. And he says, hey, I'll eat this and I'll eat that and make, give me a vegetarian diet. And of course he was better than the rest, but that's a different sermon. They could not compromise their conscience. Now, again, the Gentiles thought that's silly. We're free to do what we want to. We can eat or drink or whatever we want to do. There's no, comp there's no problem with that. But the Jews were not there yet. Now, you might think, well, that's silly. Why wouldn't they just eat the meat? It's not a big deal. But they had a conviction in their conscience that did not let them do that. Paul is asking the church to understand that everybody may respond differently with different convictions some may feel comfortable partaking, others may feel convicted doing so. So his request is that the church build a culture and promote a culture where people are allowed to work through their differences. Again, this doesn't seem like a big deal to us, but to the, the first, first century church, this is a big deal. The Jews thought, hey, we shouldn't have meat. The, the Gentiles thought we should have as much meat as we want. We'll bring it in here with blood dripping out of it we want to. We could eat it, you know, completely rare. And the Jews really would get nervous about that because they ate their meat well, 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 well done because they could not have blood because the blood was the life of the animal. And the Gentiles thought we eat it, you know, rare and, and, and sacrificed to whatever God we want because, hey, we know that stuff's not real. We got out of that, we're free. But the Jews didn't feel free yet. They should have based on how we believe, but they, they weren't there yet. And I think this could be taken out to a lot of different places and a lot of different subjects. There are things that you feel strongly about that others aren't sure about. There are things that you are very much against that others haven't figured it out yet about. There are things that you are very much for that others aren't gonna be there yet. Yet, 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 Paul's command to the church at Rome is, you know what? I'm not asking y'all to take the meat off the table. I'm not asking you to say, hey, Jews, we understand. We'll get rid of all meat. And I'm also not asking you Jews to eat the meat because if you aren't ready to eat it, you shouldn't, but let them do it. Do you see what kind of culture he's wanting to build? A place where people find a way to cooperate and coexist. Again, this is on a theological issue. This isn't, is Jesus God? Or are we saved by grace? This is a secondary, tertiary, down the list issue. Find a way to cooperate. Find a way to coexist. Again, this isn't doctrine. This is down the line. Some could have puffed up and said, if you're really liberated in Jesus, you, should, you shouldn't be so sensitive to those old things, old traditions. Some could say, well, if you're as sensitive as you should be to God, you shouldn't want to be associated with something that makes you look like you're partaking in the wrong thing. I mean, why would you want to eat meat that was given in honor of Zeus? I mean, doesn't that, doesn't that a bad look? You can see both sides, can't you? Yet neither extremes are taken. Paul says, there needs to be room to breathe, room to be different. 
and cause everyone to continue to worship the Lord above all and over all. Now, some things are top shelf issues when it comes to Jesus, salvation, the Bible, the church. But there's a lot of things that should not become points of contention. That as a church, we should watch what we say, how we say it with regards to those who are different than us from our opinions about church policies, styles to worldly subjects like politics. Some things are not worth division coming in over. You may say, well, absolutely it is worth it. Not according to Paul, not according to Jesus. Here's here's what Paul is saying that the church needs to be focused on. Creating a culture where a welcoming God draws people to himself, where he alone is our standard of justification. Because when we make these minor issues, top shelf issues, here's what happens. We begin to project this idea that if you aren't exactly like we think, then you aren't justified before God, you aren't really saved. When we know what saves people, Jesus alone saves people. But when we elevate these minor or secondary issues, we begin pushing a message of this is what justifies you. This is what our standard is. If judging people by anything other than a relationship with Jesus through his finished work and shed blood, if we are judging people by anything other than that, we are promoting that justification comes through some extra or other means. And that's dangerous, isn't it? Are there things the Bible teaches that we should do or we shouldn't do if we are in Christ? Yes. Are there things the Bible says we can do or we shouldn't use our freedom to do? Yes. But obedience or disobedience is not the basis of acceptance into the community. Christ is. And we need to be a culture where people are welcome to grow in him and be led by him. We should not be surprised to learn that there are people on the pew next to us that are different than us, at a different place than us. We must love them and encourage them as they follow the same Jesus we are. He is capable of leading his own as long as the church does not try to take away or add to his word. A few years ago, really it was over a decade ago, and I can't believe I've been doing this that long. Somebody tried to get me to address this a book series that was popular in the church, not in the church, but in the world. There was a book series that was going around. It, it wasn't sacrilegious, but it was just a little bit worldly, and, and I don't even remember about it. But uh, there was, Somebody said, hey, you need to go up in the pulpit, and you need to say, don't read those books. And, and I said, I'm not going to do that. I, I'm not going to address something that goes beyond preaching the word. I'm not going to put my own word on the level of Scripture. It, it's the same reason I don't tell people how to vote. Because if I told you that you had to do something as a Christian that was not explicitly expressed in the Bible, then it could potentially be a crisis of conscience for you over an issue that may not be present for me. If I say you've got to do this if you're a Christian and it's not based exactly on the Bible and you have to turn your head to something that you aren't comfortable turning your head to, then all I did was damage your relationship with Jesus. I did not let him get you there and get you there in a safe and healthy place, in a safe and healthy way. Some preachers and some Christians are so worried that God can't get others to the same place he's got them. And sometimes we're not even where we need to be when we act like we are. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8. By your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. 
Thus, sinning against your brother and wounding their conscience when it's weak, you sin against Christ. If you try to force somebody to do what you're doing when it's not a biblical issue, not a you know, salvation, Jesus, top shelf issue, when you try to make somebody be exactly like you and their conscience didn't lead them to that place, what does Paul say? You are sinning against Jesus by forcing them to do something that they were not comfortable doing yet. Now, that might be a little bit you know, too loose for your taste. But this is what it means to be a community where people are allowed to grow and fail and rise again. The point is some issues should be kept personal and private because making them as big or bigger than the gospel, we risk ruining someone's faith or compromising our own freedom. You know how much more joyful our communities would be if we all celebrated the fact that Jesus saves us no matter how different we are? and is holding us all accountable to him. Rather than trying to judge each other, what if we rested in the fact that all Christians are saved in spite of our sin? People say, people come to me all the time, and, and I get it, I've been, I've, I do this to myself. Justin, how can they do that, or how can they not do that if they're a Christian? The same reason you keep sinning over and over again, but nobody else knows about it but you. That's how they keep doing that. The same reason you sin again and again and again and nobody knows about it and you ask God to forgive you and he forgives you every single time. The same reason why you thought you were over pride, you thought you were over lust, you thought you were over greed, you thought you were over jealousy, but it comes right back up, doesn't it? And God has to forgive you for it and God has to help you get, back, get better from it. That's the same way God lets them do that thing that you think, oh, that's, that's too big of a deal. They, they can't keep doing that. Church, it's, it's, an, it's, it's an exhausting and embittering thing to judge other people all the time when we could be resting in Christ and rejoicing that he alone judges and he alone saves. Isn't that what this chapter is telling us? Hey, one person does this, another does that. These are not top shelf issues. We might think they are. He says, let God be the judge and find a way to enjoy your life and find a way to uplift others and help others and forgive others and pray for others and help other people realize it when they come to the light. Wow, I was wrong the whole time. Be there to help them, be there to encourage them. But let God be God and don't destroy someone's faith in the process of trying to make them just like you. You know how hard that is for me to say as a preacher? I don't get up here and preach sermons that have three different options in the middle of them, do I? I, I get up here and I preach a sermon that goes from one point to the next to the next. And I say, this is what we should do because this is how the Bible teaches it. I'm not going to give you options. So when somebody comes to me and says, hey, I'm not there yet, Justin, I, I, you know, it makes me think, what's, what's wrong with you, <laughs> right? Do, do you not see it? Like, it's right there. I just can't eat the meat, Justin. I'm just, I don't feel the freedom. Why? You don't feel the freedom. God has said you're free. You're free. You're free. Go and be free. I'm just not there yet. And it makes me just, you know, like what? But I have to breathe. And I have to take my hands off, right? And I've got to make sure that person and those people and everybody feels like they have a safe and healthy place they can grow as they mature in Christ. So here's ultimately our message as to the church and as a church. Whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. And if you can't consciously do it for the glory of God, then you should not be doing it. 
Can God be honored in your decision? Listen, aren't there things that you do now that you used to not do because you weren't sure if you could or not? And aren't there things that you used to do that you don't do anymore because you learned, hey, that wasn't right for me. That wasn't the right thing for me to do. I used to do it, but now I realize I was wrong in doing it. I used to say that word, now I don't. I used to drink that, now I don't. I used to, hey, avoid that place, but now I go because I realize it wasn't a big deal. You learned, didn't you? You learned that what you were doing did not honor God like you could have honored God. You learned that you were glorifying God in a, or you weren't glorifying God. That's what we're facilitating as a church. It's that simple. Don't you see that there's, that's much more gracious than saying, okay, well, you know what? We've got the Bible, but we've also got some other things that we think you should, be, you should do as, as a Christian. Here's some man-made laws. And if you don't abide by our man-made religion, then you know what? You're, you're not really in. You're not fit in. You know what this is similar to? There are a lot of people who are more sensitive to Old Testament Sabbath laws that we're not under anymore, like how far you can walk and what you can do and can I lift a finger or whatever. There are some people who are more sensitive to that than they are the New Testament commandments to love their neighbor, right? There are people who would no sooner let someone go hungry before they would break a Sabbath law. And and I'm not saying you shouldn't honor the Sabbath and keep it holy and go to church. But my point is, we are, a lot of us are more sensitive to things. A lot of us, we wouldn't walk into a church building without the proper dress on or the dress coat on, but we would let somebody go hungry because our conscience is more wired to the building and not the movement. And my point is this, Observe your conscience. If you want to dress like you want to dress at church, you should do it. But don't allow man-made things to become bigger than the gospel in the Bible in the commandments of what Christians should do and should not do. The danger when we begin to say, this is God's will and this is my way and this is how I see it. The danger is that we wire our conscience to the wrong thing and we are not making disciples of Jesus. We're making disciples of us. And Lord knows I don't need disciples of me. I don't need that. Look with me at Romans uh, 13 through 19. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather resolve this, not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our brother's way. I know and I am convinced by the Lord Jesus, there is nothing unclean in of itself, but to him who considers anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. Yet if your brother is grieved because of your food, you are no longer walking in love. Do not destroy your food, destroy with your food the one for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let your good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who serves Christ in these things is acceptable to God and approved by men. Therefore, let us pursue the things which make for peace and the things which one, with which one may edify another." Now, to to wrap this up, we've already covered this. What is Paul's major concern here? That we would not get in the way of our brother or sister growing. Let me show you this from 1 Corinthians. Concerning food offers to idols, we know all of us possess knowledge. We know that that those idols aren't real. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. Paul says, hey, If me eating this meat offends somebody, it's worth me considering I should not eat that meat. Listen to what he says in Corinthians 8. If food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat again, lest I make him stumble. Do you see what what Paul was most passionate about? Helping his brother or sister in Christ 
find their way. And if it meant he lost a lot of weight in the process because he quit eating meat, he would do it. Isn't that amazing? This is what reveals if your major concern is getting in the way, is getting your way or building up the body of Christ. When it's about us, we make up rules to make everyone look like us. But when it's about Jesus, we lift him up. You may read this and think Paul wants us to only be concerned about how our actions might affect or influence others. And that's exactly it. Now, mind you, this isn't about this isn't about us becoming so worried that we only do things because we're being what? This is not paranoid posturing. This is about selflessly serving one another. Look at verse 20. Do not destroy the, God, the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are pure, but it is evil for the man who eats with offense. Let me, let me translate that for you. Do not destroy the work of God over something disposable and temporary. Lord, there are so many sermons in that verse. Do you hear me? Do not destroy the work God is doing or could do over something disposable and temporary. I'm not going to fight you over something that is going to be burnt up one day. That's this world, right? There are areas that we may have strong opinions in, whether we are free to do them or not free to do them, but we cannot tie the work of God to our own opinions. We cannot become so focused on our agenda that we become unusable in the work of God. We cannot, for the sake of food or drinks or money or politics, destroy the work of God. You may be free to partake in something. You may feel convicted to partake in something. But Paul says, be careful that you don't destroy what God is trying to do because you are so dogmatic about something that God is not. I know we're running long, but we're done. We're about done. It is good neither to eat meat or drink wine or anything by which your brother stumbles or is offended or is made weak. Do you have faith? Have it to yourself over God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats because he does not eat from faith for whatever is not from faith is sin. Paul says, hey, are you, do you have that conviction? Do you have that opinion? That's fine. Have that opinion all you want to. But when you stand for the people of God, before the people of God, when you do the work of the ministry... Remember the main thing. It could be the things that we cling to or hesitate to give up. It could be that we assume others should adopt, that maybe they're not the best thing for us after all. That's what he means in verse 23. Perhaps the thing that we're clinging to is something that we, upon further examination, isn't actually good for us or the main thing that we think it is. This entire study has been about getting us to evaluate what is most important when it comes to our faith. Over time, we will use our faith to justify or excuse certain things rather than allowing our faith to bring us closer to Jesus. And here is what Paul's main concern is. Our Christian faith is not a cover-up for our flesh, but an opportunity to be covered and changed by the Spirit. Let's make sure that's what's happening. Make sure that we're being transformed. Our text has had a lot to do with food tonight, which makes us think of our bellies and our guts the, the phrase gut check is a phrase used to examine our motives resolve and commitment I think that's what this chapter is really about that we would examine what is our commitment are we so committed to the body of Christ that we would be willing to consider the things that we do the things that we say the things that we don't do and don't say 
because of how they might affect other people. That's what this is about. Every aspect of our life ought to be an overflow of our devotion to, faith, devotion to and faith in Jesus. If there's something in us, about us, that does not extend from that and does not build up the body from that, then we may not, we may not should cling to it as we do. By no means should we promote it as we do. That's what this message is meant to do. Call into question everything that exists alongside of Jesus. Is it there because of him? Is it there to his detriment? Does it honor him? Does it help others see him in us? Maybe it should stay, maybe it should go, but regardless, let's make sure he's calling the shots and that he's in control. Church, really that chapter deserves about three or four hours. We only had one. I hope that you understand how serious this issue is. And I hope that we begin to see just how much sanctification has to do with how we relate to others that we would not even consider changing our opinions or changing how we present our opinions or changing how we assume others should have our opinions so that we might allow God to give them room to grow and give them patience and grace like he gave us. That's what it's all about. And thank God he gave us that grace and patience, right? Thank God that you all did that to me and for me. And I'll make sure I try to my best to do that to all of you. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you so much. Thank you for Jesus and his grace and his patience that he has for us. Lord, thank you for showing us the way that you would have us to go as Christians, as you would have us to follow as Christians. Help us be a church that creates a culture and maintains a culture that allows people room to grow. Help us not to push our agenda, but push your agenda. Not our wills, but your wills. Lord, help us to love that one that is completely different than us. And maybe they'll become like us. Maybe we'll become like them. But regardless, we want to both become like Jesus. And that's why we're here. We ask this in his name. Amen.